Good morning, everyone. My name is Dan, one of the pastors here. Uh, If you're a guest with us, you're visiting with us, um, one of the things you'll notice as you come is that we use a preaching team here, and so there are seven of us, mostly pastors and elders, who um, rotate through for the sermons, and what we're focusing on right now, the book of the Bible that we are in is uh, called Acts, Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We've been arguing for that. It's these ongoing works of Jesus after his resurrection, after his ascension, the way that he is at work through his spirit, among his people, Um, and today we'll be in Acts 20. Before we get in there, I just want to give a quick personal update. Many of you ask uh, each week and pray for us just uh, on what is the status with our our home uh, as we've been rebuilding since we had a fire in December. We are thankfully, hopefully, uh, moving in this week uh, back into our home, and so, yeah, we're... I'm grateful for that, but just wanted to publicly express thanks uh, for so many in this church who've uh, prayed for us and cared for us and given toward us in all, all those ways that uh, we have been cared for by you, and so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, before we look at this passage, I'm wondering if you, some of you may know the song. Uh, it was in the early 2000s country song by Tim McGraw called Live Like You Were Dying. Uh, And it's about this guy in his early 40s who finds out that he's sick and is about to die. And in the song, someone asks him, man, what'd you do? How'd you respond to this? And he says, do you know, I went skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing. Yeah, so he's, it's this bucket list things of what he does as he's now choosing to live life to its fullest, Uh, but not just a bucket list of things. He also talks about how relationships, he views them differently, he loves deeper, he gives forgiveness that he's been denying, Um, and all these things. It even talks about his Bible and God and just priorities were, were changed for him, and it all leads up to this line where he says, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Um, What if you could? What if this week you knew this is your last week? One week from today, next Sunday, you will die. What would you do with this week? Um, I'm not not sure what I would do. Uh, I I do think one thing I'd want to make sure to do is have some final conversations, um, some key parting words that I'd want to share with some people. And I think, I think some of the ones that would feel the most weighty would be with my sons. Um, sit down with each of them and say, what would I want to, to leave with them? What would I want to, sh- to say to them, to share with them that they will remember it? Uh, whether they follow it or not, they would remember those words the rest of their life. Uh, and I'd want to think through what's the most important thing I want to communicate to them to, to shape them, to help, to help prepare them for life without me in this world. Um, and that's kind of what Paul's doing in Acts 20. Uh, he is, he's, he's giving parting words, farewell words. Uh, there's this heart-wrenching scene at the end of uh, Acts 20 where he says to them, 
you'll, you'll never, I'll, I'll never see you again. And they, they're grieving, they're weeping, they're hugging, they're kissing him. And it says that the, what, what was hardest for them was knowing that they'll never see his face again. And so it's in that context. We're at the end of this uh, mission, his third missionary journey. He had just spent three years or two to three years in Ephesus with, with this church and he's preparing them and equipping them. Uh, at the end of last sermon, as, as Blake was preaching, there's this, there's this riot, there's this uproar that's going on in Ephesus. And our passage picks up right at the end of that, right after all that calms down. He's going to give them a farewell. Then he's going to go around to some of the other churches that he had started, some of the other churches that he had planted, give farewell encouragements and addresses to them. Uh, and then he has one extended where we actually get to hear what did he say to the, the church leaders, the elders of the church of Ephesus, as he wants to leave them with, here's my final address to you before, before I leave and never see you again. And so let's read this whole chapter, um, and then we'll look through and see what are some priorities, what's, what are the most important things that we see for the church, for Christian life, um, coming out of this key passage at the end here of his missionary journeys. Okay, Acts 20, verse 1. After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, he encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. And when he'd passed through those areas and offered them many words of encouragement, he came to Greece and stayed three months. The Jews plotted against him when he was about to set sail for Syria, and so he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy and Tychicus, Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, in five days we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. Just one quick note there. You're, you're seeing the pronouns change to we here. Uh, I think it happened back in Acts 16. And then here there's a few different places in Acts where Luke uh, apparently was there with them, with Paul. So one of his fellow travelers and so eyewitness of these events. Uh, most think that's why he changed the pronouns there to we as he's telling this story. Then verse 7, on the first day of the week, and now they're in Troas, so it says, on the first day of the week we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a windowsill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. When he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, bent over him, embraced him, and said, Don't be alarmed, because he's alive. And after going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn. And then he left. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. When we went on, we went on ahead of the ship or to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul on board, because these were his instructions since he himself was going by land. 
When he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went on to Mytilene. Sailing from there, the next day we arrived off Caius. The following day, we crossed over to Samos. And, this, and the day after, we came to Miletus. And so there's just all these different stops on this journey. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. But now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable, or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Now, here's this charge to them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, Men will rise up, even from your own number, and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it's necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want us to go back through and look at this passage by looking at two main priorities, two main spheres where we're seeing priorities here, or what's most important. Uh, we're going to look and see these priorities for the church, and then priorities for the Christian. Uh, a lot of this is written for Christian leaders, and so there is going to be an emphasis today on what is God calling the shepherd leaders, pastors, elders 
of this church too and to other churches? What's, what is, what's the call of those in leadership? But there's also implication for all of us for sure. A lot of this applies to all of us in our own spheres of life and ministry. But, but first I want us to look and see what is, there, there are some things here in this chapter as well just about how do we understand the church? How do we understand the gathered, the corporate uh, nature of the church? And so the first thing that we'll see is there is an emphasis on the word and sacrament or the word and the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper are two things that, that come out just in the narratives of the descriptions of what's going on here. In Acts 20, verse 1, it says, Paul sent for the disciples, and what does he do? He encouraged them. In verse 2, it says he passed through those areas, and he offered them many words of encouragement. And then, then even just the way that he tells the story of Eutychus, that's a fun story, uh, where Paul's preaching so long that this guy falls asleep, falls out the window, and dies. But, but this miracle of resurrection uh, is just like barely mentioned. Uh, there's, there's still, just even in the way that it's told, it's like Paul just, just goes right on doing what he was doing. Um, so it says in verse 7, on the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. And so here's, here's a, an emphasis for the church. This is the first time actually that we have a, a record of, of the Christian church, this clear description that the, the Christian church starts gathering, starts assembling for worship on Sunday. And it's not a given as a command it's just a description and we're we're left to assume maybe this is this is a normal practice here at this church in Troas that each week they're gathering for assembling to break bread and in that gathering though a lot of what takes place is the ministry of the word and I think this this isn't um something that we should follow, even the way Luke tells this, is, it seems abnormal. Paul's going on and on. So it's, it's not like our sermons need to be six hours or go all night, uh, but he's saying there's an there's a urgency here. We don't know what Paul is saying, but there is an urgency, again, as this is Paul's last time with them, that he's, he's wanting to, to dialogue with them, to discuss with them, to preach to them, and to, to share these priorities with them. And so he's, Luke says he's going on and on. Uh, and as Paul kept talking, it hits midnight, there's lamps in the room, uh, Eutychus is sitting on the windowsill, maybe trying to get some fresh air, gradually he's sinking into a deep sleep, he falls out the window, he falls three stories, they go down and it describes him as dead, they picked him up and he was dead, and so Paul goes down and there's this reviving, a, a resurrection that happens, and that is the theme that we see in Acts, both both sermons about the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the coming resurrection of the dead, Tabitha is raised from the dead, Eutychus here. And so there are these glimpses, there are these signs that are pointing both to, to Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection. But Luke doesn't actually mention any of that. There's, there's not a lot said here, except later they go home and they're greatly comforted. But what Paul does he goes down, he revives this boy, gets him up, kind of stands him up, takes him upstairs, leads in communion, and goes on preaching. Um, and so just this continual emphasis here of what's, what's most important, what's emphasized by Luke and Paul, is the word and the breaking of bread together. And then if, as you skip down, just kind of glance down, tracing this theme later on in verse 25, Paul says... 
Um, among you, I went about preaching the kingdom. And so, the, again, the ministry of the word there is important. He says, I didn't avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. And so there, there is this emphasis here, this central theme. Now, Luke isn't here trying to describe everything that should happen when the church gathers to worship. Prayer isn't mentioned here. Uh, worship isn't, music isn't, worship, isn't mentioned here. And so the, the one another's that the church does, the fellowship... Uh, there's other things in, in other places of Scripture that describe more, but, but what Luke does emphasize here in just his description, these, as, as Paul goes through these churches, is this ministry of the Word and the sacraments. And then, and then we're going to, well, specifically the Lord's Supper. Baptism isn't mentioned here either. But then, then I want us to think through, how does Luke describe the church here? And to do that, let's jump down to verse 17. So here's where he's talking, Paul is speaking to the elders. So he summoned the elders of this church. He, he didn't want to go up to Ephesus because he had a mission. He wanted to get to Jerusalem. He had a, a certain time frame that he wanted to get there. He had a lot of close friends at Ephesus and were, were wondering. Uh, he didn't go there. He made the elders come to him because probably if he went into Ephesus and into that region, he would have been delayed. Many people would have uh, wanted his time, and it, he didn't have time for that. And so he brought the elders here. This next best thing, if I can just pass on these final words to these elders, then they can share them with the church. And so this charge, look at verse 28. What does he say to the elders? So the priorities of the church, the word and sacrament, but then second we're going to see is godly shepherd leaders. Verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. And he says, Shepherd the church of God. Later down in verse 29, he refers to the church again as the flock. And so before looking at the leaders, let's just stop there and see how does, how does Paul here describe? He's using this image for the people of God, the church of God, as a flock, flock of sheep that have shepherds. Uh, and this is, he's picking up on a, a theological theme that actually goes all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, when God was leading his people through the wilderness, Psalm 77 says that it's like he was leading his flock, God was, through his servants, Moses and Aaron. In, in the next Psalm, Psalm 78, it speaks of David and said, David, who was a shepherd, God took him out of that and made him a shepherd of his people. And so using this, this imagery that they would have been familiar with, they knew what shepherds did, they knew how they, they cared for the sheep, they made sure that they were fed, they made sure that they were protected, they, they were um, present with them. And so there were a lot of images here of the ways that, that leaders care for those under their, under their leadership. Uh, but, but also the Old Testament really condemns the kind of leaders that abuse those who are under their care. Uh, in Ezekiel 34, uh, there's this condemnation. It says, Israel, you're shepherds. They are bad shepherds. Uh, they have fed themselves and, and they've let the sheep starve. They've actually um, used and abused the sheep who are under their care uh, instead of trying to sacrificially care for them. And so there's this condemnation that God will judge those kind of leaders and, and also points 
forward to a day when a true shepherd will come. And so there's this, there's this promise that, that a shepherd, a David shepherd will come, a future David will come and be the shepherd of his people. Uh, King David wrote Psalm 23, which we're familiar with. The Lord is my shepherd. And so through the Old Testament, there is this imagery of God is the one who truly cares for his people watching out for them, guarding them. And there was coming one who would dwell among us and be that shepherd. And so we saw that in Jesus. In Matthew 9, where, where it says that Jesus saw the crowds and he was moved with compassion. It affected him emotionally uh, because he saw them uh, like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus referred to himself as that. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd of the sheep. And I, I lay down my life for the sheep. And we, we see that in this, in this passage as well, where, where it says that this is the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so there's a, there's a preciousness here of the church, of God's people, of his, of his care for them. But then he entrusts his people to other people who are among them to, to lead them. And so Jesus said to Peter, uh, after Jesus was raised from, the raised from the dead and he was here in resurrected form and he's, he's restoring Peter to relationship with him and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, you know I do. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And Jesus says again, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord. And Jesus says, care for my lambs, tend my, tend my lambs. These, these couple different words used, but just this same idea of care for. And he, Jesus asked him a third time, again, feed my sheep. And, and then Peter, in his epistle later, would write the same thing to elders, to, to leaders of the church, shepherd the church of God, which is among you. And so this theme of the church as this cared for, precious a family of God, this, this sheep that, that, that exist in a flock that, have, that are cared for by God through leaders is, is what Paul is teaching here. But then he, he speaks to those leaders. That's who he's speaking to. And there's a high calling that he gives them. In verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers, to shepherd the church of God. And then he goes on describing one of the ways that that shepherding will look. He says, After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Well, what does he mean by that? It's, it's the false teaching imagery. We see that by what he says next. He says, Men will rise up, even from your own number, and distort the truth and lure the disciples into following them. So therefore, be on the alert. Remembering night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. So a couple words about who these leaders are from this passage. And then what do they do? So as we think about these priorities for the church, uh, Paul calls them elders. Uh, and then he also says the Holy Spirit appointed you as overseers. And, and then he gives them this verb of what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to shepherd, which is the same word, our, our English word, for pastor. And so all three of these terms, in this passage at least, 
are referring to the same leaders of the church who are, who are elders, who are called to both oversee and to shepherd. And, and in shepherding, we, we, we see in the Bible two, there's a lot of maybe our minds could run on what all did shepherds do and well they they sheared the sheep so should we shear no no, so just but there's there's specific things that the the bible does say here's the image that i'm i'm trying to show you shepherds feed and guard feed and protect and so there is a there's a teaching ministry but it's not just a teaching ministry there's a presence among the sheep there's a presence among the people and there's a there's a watching out for the kind of false teaching that would lead people away from God what would that look like today there's there's all kinds of false teaching that exists out there in in Ephesus one of the things that came was people came in we see this in the pastoral epistles they came in and they were they were saying oh the the resurrection has already happened uh, and 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 Paul was saying, no, that's a false teaching. This is, this is not. We're still in this already but not yet time. Uh, and there's in other places in the pastoral epistles and other places as Paul's writing, he's, he's warning against a, a denying that Christ was truly human or that Christ was truly God. And so these foundational essentials of the faith are still under attack today as well. I think one of the threats as well in our church and in the American church, maybe, is for us to, to see, oh, if God is really loving, he wouldn't be against sin. And there's, there's this threat that can, that can sneak in that's real similar to the, the temptation in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really mean that? Is God, is God just trying to withhold pleasure from you? Is he trying to keep something that's good from you? And that can, there are probably people that you know who formerly professed faith in Christ, but because of some of the hard statements of Christianity, because some of the, the, the hard statements that God makes where he has ethical demands, moral demands on our lives that people don't want, that people don't want those things to be true and therefore they've rejected Christianity as a whole, and, and Paul's warning here, watch out for those who will come in and try to lure people away from the truth. And he says, even from among you. So there's, there's, there's false teaching from outside for sure, but he's also warning of a false teaching that can grow up from inside the church. And, and it seems like implied even from among these elders as he's speaking to them. And so our priorities for the church, the word and sacrament and godly shepherd leaders. And what I want to do now is is back up to where he begins giving his own personal testimony. Um, Some of his own priorities, the ways that he did ministry, these do still apply in a high way to elders, to leaders. But I think you'll see as we go through these these are reflections of our Savior that apply to all of us in the various ways that we're called to live, the various roles that we have, our areas of life and ministry. So let's now look at priorities for the Christian in general. Look what he says in verse 18. So he summoned these elders to himself. It says, when they came to him, he said to them, And now he's going to tell like his own story. You know 
From the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. And so this first one that we see is this priority for us, this call for us to have a humble presence. And the word presence can mean a couple different things. And so I, I don't mean here just like our vibe, our aura, our, um, the impression that we give off is humble, although that's true. What I actually mean is to, to focus in on this word where he says, I am with you. And so there, we are called to be present in relationship with others. Uh, he says, I, I was with you, and how was I with you? What, and what, what did that look like? What was my relationship as I was with you, as I, did my, I spent my life with you? I was in your homes. I was in public. I, I cried with you. I wept with you. And so what did that look like? He said, I was with you serving the Lord with humility, with tears, and during trials. There's a, there's a humility here that does remind us so much of what Jesus taught as what, when he called, if you want to be a leader, you're going to, to serve. Because even the Son of Man came not to, serve, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Paul says, this is what my ministry was like. I was, it, was, it was humility. It was with you. It was present. It was with tears. It was serving. Tim Keller pointed out that Outside of biblical literature and in Greek literature around this time, if you saw the word humble or humility or serving, these weren't virtues uh, in, in the broader culture. Those weren't things to be desired. Uh, they were things to be despised. They were viewed as weaknesses. They were viewed as, as not helpful, not things that you wanted to see present in your, in your leaders. Uh, but Paul is, is teaching here what Jesus taught, that there's an upside-down view of these things, that, that we're, not, we're not called to, to have everything put together and to, to have this really charismatic charisma, this, this uh, leaders that, are, that just have all of their lives together and then lead out of that. No, there's a humility that he says, because we want God to be viewed as great. And so he says, I came to you with humility. I was a servant. Two things here that can really help us with that are going through difficulty, um, hard things. When, when you're interacting with friends and family and people that you care deeply about, there, there are going to be um, emotions and empathy and sadness. And so the tears that he mentioned and also the trials, those things are often God's ways of humbling us, uh, of causing us to be dependent on him. So what, what about your areas of life? What about your parenting? Is it, is it done more through anger um, or through humility and tears? What characterizes more of that? What about your evangelism or your, your posture to those outside of Christianity, um, your conversations with them, is it, is it more filled with pride, uh, with, again, harshness or anger, or like Paul, is it filled with humility, with, with tears, with, with empathy, with a grieving? 
People in your life, are there, are there, are there souls in your life that, that you are grieving because they are far from God and you're, you're longing for them to, to return, to come back, to come to him, to repent? This kind, of, this kind of attitude and heart that we see in Paul. We, we see it again in verse 36, and then we'll move on. Verse 36, this is, this is as he wraps up. This just emphasizes again. This is the kind of relationship he had with them. He knelt down. He prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul. They, they kissed him. This is not just a a special speaker who, who came on, on Sundays for them. No, he was, he was with them. Uh, he did his life with them. They were, there was a closeness with them. Uh, ministry happens best in, in relationship and through relationship. And so even, even as a church for us, uh, to put this priority, yes, on this gathered, uh, weekly gathering that we have, but also are, are there people that you're, you're in relationship with who you know and who, who know you uh, who you're praying for and you know the temptations and you know the difficulties and, and they know yours and they're able to walk through this with you. And so we, we see this kind of, of hint toward the importance of good one another relational ministry as well. Okay, first one's humble presence. The next one though is bold truthfulness because we could quickly be very humble and, um, and, and never tell people the truth. Never, never be willing to say the difficult things. That wasn't Paul's testimony. In verse 20, there was a bold truthfulness. He says, you know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house, testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, there's nothing that I was ashamed to tell you. I didn't hold anything back I wasn't prejudiced of, of who I would share this with, Jew and, and Greek. I, I wasn't um, hiding this call that God gives to people of repentance and faith. This was the, the message of the good news that Jesus gave as well. And just a, just a pause, side note here. Some of you likely are here and, and you're not yet Christian. You're not yet trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. This is what God calls you to. It's to repentance and to faith, to, to believe the good news that Jesus, God's Son, came into this world and lived perfectly in your place. Because we can't. We're all sinners deserving God's wrath. But then he died to take that punishment for us. What we just read earlier, that he purchased us with his own blood, that he died. He was that perfect sacrifice for us, but then he rose again. But then the call for all people is to repent, to turn away from being your own king and, and to trust that Jesus is the true king, to say, I'm not going to follow my own way, my own thinking, my, my own preferences, my own efforts of saving myself but no my faith is in Jesus Christ and and that is how salvation comes it's by God's grace it's not something you earn it's it's through this kind of faith in him casting yourself on him and he will save you you can do that right now where you are this is, the, this is the message that Paul was faithful to proclaim, that he, he did not hide from, from telling people that they were in sin and they, they were 
facing God's wrath if they did not repent. Verse 25, he says the same thing. He says, I I went preaching the kingdom and I declare to you this day, verse 26, that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. There was nothing that was profitable, nothing in in this, this essentials of what was part of God's plan and his message. Nothing did Paul keep back from them. What about people in our lives? There's probably people who don't know that we're Christian, don't even know that about you. Or maybe they do, but you've never really done what, what Paul is able to say here of, I've, I've given them the truth. I've boldly proclaimed the truth. Now, now again, it should be with humility, with tears, not with this superiority or condemnation, but, but for Paul to say, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. This is an Old Testament theme as well, and we, we use it a little bit today, like person has blood on their hands. It just means like they're guilty. They're, it's their fault. They're, they're part of the blame. And, and Paul's saying, no, I can, I can honestly say that I have a clear conscience. It's not up to me about how you respond, about how people respond to this. I'm not called to be a savior. I am called to be a herald. I'm called to be a proclaimer, to, to speak the good news. And, and not that every single person that we ever see, we're, we're going to be able to, to speak the whole counsel of God, the whole plan of God. Can you, can you give me a few hours? I've got to get through this. No, we, we can't do that. But, but we can also check our hearts because that could be an easy excuse. It could be that our reason that we haven't ever talked to someone about Jesus is because of fear, because we're ashamed, because because we don't see it as, as more important than our own popularity or how that person views us. So there's a humble presence. There's a bold truthfulness. Now, I want you to jump all the way down to verse 33. We're going to see an unselfish generosity. Verse 33, he says, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself. And those who are with me, in every way I've shown you that this is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. There are other places where where Paul does emphasize the importance and, and the good in supporting financially those who are giving themselves to gospel ministry. And so... This isn't a text where he's, he's saying no pastors, no, no, no church workers should be employed by the church. But I think he is giving his own, his own testimony of how he did not want to be a burden to the church. And, and certainly his heart motivation was not one of covetousness, of greed, of, of trying to do what the Ezekiel shepherds did where they were feeding themselves but not caring for the sheep and Paul elsewhere gives warnings to pastors and elders to not be lovers, not be greedy of, of money, not be lovers of money or, or greedy and covetous and given to those things. And materialism, those can be temptations for sure. But broader than that as well, just thinking about all of our relationships, um, J.D. Greer said of this passage, one application of this is just to think of all the different relationships in your life. 
Are they, are they marked more by you taking or by you giving? He was saying in all your relationships, a good goal would be I want to give more than I take. Uh, and it's not just money, it's other things as well. Just in that relationship, am I, am I using people, manip- manipulating people for, for what they can do for me? And these words of Jesus, we, we don't have them in the Gospels, but this must have been circulating as words from Jesus that they knew that he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. That it's, actually, it's actually good. It's good in your relationships. There's, there's goodness in this. There's wisdom and joy that comes from seeking to be selflessly generous. And then what motivates Paul for all this? Uh, let's jump back up to what maybe is the most famous section of this chapter. That's verse 22 through 24 where we'll see his undivided faithfulness. It's really about his value system why does he see all this as worth it to give himself wholly to this ministry in this way? He says, now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me, chains, afflictions are waiting for me. So he says, I'm going this place and I know bad things are going to happen. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course, the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul was not um, just suffering from low self-esteem or self-hate here. He's, he's, He's saying, yeah, life is valuable, but not compared to this calling this life isn't all there is. There's, there's more than this life, and, and there are greater things to live for. John Piper of this text says, faithfulness is greater than life. This is what, this is what Paul believed and, and knew, is that the most important thing is not just to stay alive. There, there, are, there are better things to live for even than that. And so it's why he could say, even, even if it leads to my death, it's worth it. I, I, what's more important is living for what comes after death. Philippians, Philippians he, he says a couple different times similar things. In chapter 1, he says of Philippians, verse 20, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body. And then he says, whether by life or by death. Why? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he had learned that earlier, actually, at his conversion. He talks about that also in Philippians. In chapter 3, he says, Everything that was gained to me, I've considered them to be lost because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be lost. Why? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul had this value system that said, no, knowing Christ, living for him, being faithful to what I have been called to is so much better, will lead to so much more joy than if I just live my life in a self-protective way, trying to, trying to secure my own pleasure in this life. It's better. It's better to finish my course 
the ministry that I've received from the Lord, testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This, this, is, this is a high calling for leaders in the church. Humbly present. We are among. We are sheep. Um, we're among the flock. But yet we're called to, to in humility, in tears, in faithfulness, in serving through trials uh, to, to lead the church. Uh, speaking boldly. Not, not in our sermons, trying to hide things, to, to hold things back that we're embarrassed about, that we're, that we're afraid to say what people will think of us, but to proclaim in our ministries the whole counsel of God. Not driven by greed and covetousness and what we can get from people in the church, and yet we are undividedly faithful to what God has called us to. But it's not just leaders, right? This, these, these kinds of things are, are true of every believer. That in all of our relationships, these things should be characteristic. That these, these were, these, this, as you look through this list, this is, this is the character of Christ. Christ was humbly present with us, boldly speaking truth, but in love, selflessly giving of himself, much more giving than receiving for Christ undivided faithfulness to, the, to, to his mission, to his calling. And so all of us are going to fail in this, in our relationships. That doesn't mean we don't press toward this and pursue this. I think that's what Paul's calling these elders to and calling us to today is to press toward these things, but yet knowing we have a Savior who perfectly did these things in our place. So to this week, probably can't, or shouldn't, for most of us, live like we're dying. You still need to buy groceries. Don't spend all of your money. Um, but, yet, but yet we should live like there's more to life than just this life. We should live with an eternal mindset that there's, there's something greater to live for than just the pleasures of this world. Living for that day when we, we strive and hope to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not, not good and faithful savior, good and faithful servant. That you're, you're faithful to what God has called you to. If you're a kid, there is something that God has called you to. Are you faithful to, to the stage of life that you're in now, the way that you interact with your friends, the way that you interact with your parents, the way that you interact with your teachers, the way that you, the way that you view your schoolwork that's getting ready to start up, and, and what God has called you to, are you faithful to him? If you're working in, in your job, are, are you faithful to what God, God has called you to? in your home, with, with your children, faithful to what God has called you to, in your ministry relationships, and, and in your witness to the world, faithful to what God has called you to. This is how we live with eternity in mind. Let's pray together.